What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of your favorite podcast. This is the best of the best, Maverick's Guide to Success. You should know the deal by now if you're a regular listener, but if you are not, my name is Maverick Levy. I am the host of this podcast, and I just want to say I appreciate and thank you all for supporting the show. Every day I get new messages, whether it's on Instagram, DM, on Facebook, Twitter, text messages, whatever it may be, even on LinkedIn. I have a lot of people just reach out to me to show their support for the show. So really, I can never say thank you enough. I appreciate all of you. You all are the reason that the show is what it is today. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Moving on, please, everyone, always remember that the discussions on this podcast are for informational purposes only. I cannot predict and do not guarantee that you will attain a particular result from the information provided. You should always seek professional assistance before making decisions in connection with the topics discussed. Now, let's jump right into this week's interview. On today's show, episode number 24 of the podcast, I would like to introduce Richard Bush, who is a partner at the law firm King and Ballo. Am I saying that correct, Richard? King and Baloo. King and Baloo. Look at that. <laughs> but let's welcome Richard to the show. Welcome to the show, Richard. I've been excited for this conversation. How you doing? I'm doing well, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. You know, for everyone that's listening, Richard is a part of the DBP family. If you don't know what DBP is... You got to listen to a few more of the show episodes, but DBP stands for Dust Brothers Productions. They are producers of the podcast. They produce a number of podcasts. Richard Bush has his own podcast, which is called Blurred Laws and Life. So make sure to go subscribe to his show to learn about. Uh, he talks about a numerous things, entertainment, legal, law type of conversations. But Richard, let's get into some background questions about yourself before we dive right into the interview. I like to do this so the listeners can get to know you a little bit, have a little background knowledge about you. So where did you grow up? I grew up in a little part of Miami called Carroll City, which if you know Miami at all, is a predominantly African-American part of Miami. I was pretty much the only white boy in the entire neighborhood. And uh, and that's where I grew up. And where did you go to college for undergrad? First, I played baseball and I got a scholarship to this small school in Florida. It's in St. Petersburg. That's pretty much a baseball school only and it's called Eckerd College. And I went there for one year, but I really didn't like it. And my best friend in high school was graduating. We wanted to go play baseball together. And I was also playing football at the time. So I wanted to go to a smaller school where I could do both. And so I ended up going to Augustana College, which is in Rock Island, Illinois. It's the Quad Cities. It's right on the border of Illinois and Iowa. And for a Miami boy, it was pretty much the first time I got exposed to that winter weather. And it was quite a shock. Yeah, you were in a much different environment growing up. That's for sure. Damn straight. You, you were a leader to be willing to get out of this weather. <laughs> Actually, every, for everyone listening, obviously, this podcast is invisible, but both Richard and I are in Florida. We're in different parts of Florida. But I don't know how you ever left growing up here. If I would have grew up here, I probably would have never left. Well, if you grew up in my neighborhood, you'd want to go. <laughs> you'd want to go somewhere. You'd want to go somewhere. 
<laughs> yeah, that, I feel like that's a childhood mentality, right, too. It's like, oh, I've been living here forever. I want to get out, explore the world a little bit. Exactly. So I feel like the listeners can relate to that. For sure. And then where did you end up going to law school? I went to law school at Loyola University Law School. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. And what made you want to be an attorney? When was the moment in your life where you were like, okay, this is what I want to do? Pretty much my senior year in college when I realized I wasn't going to play professional baseball and I didn't want to get a job and I wasn't ready to go to work. And I majored in history. So my options were pretty much become a high school history teacher and, <laughs> and coach baseball maybe or find something else. And the something else wasn't going to be medical school. And for me, it wasn't going to be business school because I didn't really take any of those kind of statistics or economic classes. So I was like, hmm, what can I do to avoid growing up quite yet? And so I said, <laughs> maybe I'll go to law school. And that's what I decided to do. That's awesome. That is really <laughs> awesome. And before we dive right into things, like I said before, this is a new background question I'm asking everyone because times are very unique. So I just like to ask, how are you doing overall? Is everything good with you, with your family? Are you doing okay? I'm doing great. 2020 has been challenging for a lot of people, and I don't want to understate what everyone has been going through because for many people, it is a year they'll never be able to undo um, with all the tragedy of, of the deaths and everything. But for 2020, for me personally, it actually has been okay because in my line of work, you know, we can do everything now by Zoom. Um, the legal practice goes on, lawsuits go on. And so I'm able to do things from wherever I am and not have to go into the office and not have to do those things. So for me personally, it, it has, you know, thank God has not been that bad, but I don't want to at all under state how horrific it has been for so many different people. And I'm in the entertainment field, right? I do a lot of entertainment law, so I have a lot of friends in the entertainment business. And it's not just entertainers, it's the people who support the entertainers that work at venues, et cetera, that are suffering without live performances and all of that. So it's been horrible for many, many people. But for me personally, um, it's been okay. Yeah, that's awesome to hear because... Obviously, it is tough for a lot of people. Everyone's in a different situation. Everyone's going through different things. Everyone's at different stages in their life. And to hear that someone is doing good is always puts a smile on my face and is great to hear because I like to know that there are people out there that are doing okay during these times. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Now, let's dive into what I always call the nitty gritty of the show. It's a part where we get into what you do, your advice, who you are. As you know, Richard, this podcast is mostly about the shit that's not taught in school, but is essential in life. And for a second, I want to just get a little personal and then I'll get us right back on track. But for a long time, this is actually kind of a it's a weird situation that I have Richard on the show at this time in my life because Richard and I were just talking before we started recording. I just took my LSATs. I plan to go to law school. So having this conversation with Richard is not only going to be inspiring, but it's also going to be a little bit educational for me because I get to learn a little bit about what an everyday lawyer does. Obviously, he specializes in certain areas and practices in certain areas more than others. But it's going to be very cool for me to hear. And I think going back to uh, talking about how this podcast is focused on the shit that's not taught in school, I think a lot of the times people, you know, look at lawyers in a different lens or look at lawyers in a different way or think their job is made up to be something that it's not or maybe vice versa. But the first question I want to start with asking you is I want to know 
What areas of law do you specialize in and practice? Well, I am most well known for, and I think because of who your audience is and what you're trying to accomplish in this podcast, that my story might be inspiring because people who now know of me and, and know of the things that I've won and that I've done always want to know how I got into entertainment law. And and I think that if we back up and I kind of give you, and, and people who know me and, and who know of me have heard this story before, but for those of you who haven't, I think it's going to be, and for you particularly, because I think that you, for someone who wants to be a lawyer, will, will enjoy hearing this story. But for those of you who don't know me, um, I am most famous for winning uh, several entertainment-related cases, music-related cases. The most recent that has been well-known has been the, was the Blurred Lines case, hence my podcast, Blurred Laws in Life, where I represented Marvin Gaye's family against Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke on their song, Blurred Lines, where we claim that it infringed Marvin Gaye's song, Got to Give It Up. Uh, a few years ago, it was all over the news, it was all over the world, um, and we won that case, and we won it big. Also, before interactive streaming became the way we consume music, permanent downloads were the way most people consume music. And when permanent downloads in the iTunes store launched, we represented Eminem, uh, his production company, in a lawsuit against Universal Music, where we alleged that all of the record labels were underpaying artists for digital downloads. Uh, they were paying them on the what's called the record sold royalty rate, which is like pennies, when they should be receiving the license rate, because we claim that record labels are licensing, not selling to iTunes, and they should be getting 50% of whatever the record labels get. And we won that case too, which was a landmark case and ultimately probably cost the record labels billions of dollars. So though I've won, you know, I've had many, many I beat P. Diddy in a huge copyright infringement case involving sampling of uh, by a notorious B.I.G. song, and that was the largest sampling verdict in history. So I've won a lot of cases, and I'm well known in the entertainment industry and the music industry specifically for kind of these landmark decisions that we've won over the last 10, 15 years. So entertainment law is what, what your specialty is, what you're best known for, and sort of gives the background to the listeners of who you are in these historic landmark cases surrounding the music industry as a whole. Um, is what you've been focusing on. So how did you get into the entertainment law space? Like what was like a, a kid that grew up in this little city in Miami that was playing baseball afterwards? How did he get to be involved in this entertainment law industry? How did I get to represent Eminem and Marvin Gaye and James Taylor? Exactly. Well, you know, like I said, this story it could take an entire podcast. I'm going to try and boil it down because I think this is People have told me this has been inspiring for them, and I think for you, perhaps going to law school and those, you take whatever you want from this. But when I did first go to law school, you know, I had never really focused on my grades. I really had never focused on academics. I was always more of an athlete. But And, and I figured I'd probably flunk out and um, that I would never be able to compete against the people that I assumed were going to be much smarter than me. But um, once I got there, my competitiveness kicked in, and I'm like, I'm, like, I'm going to get these motherfuckers. And so I really just studied my ass off and like I just had a lot of faith in myself and I ended up graduating fourth in my law school class and then I got a federal clerkship with a federal judge which is kind of the best thing you can get out of law school then I went to work for my law firm in Nashville Tennessee it's just I started there as a first year associate and now I pretty much you know control the law firm I've been at the same law firm my entire career and when I got there 
and this is kind of what you don't learn in law school kind of stuff, there were 25 new associates that were starting with me, and we represented the New York Daily News in New York. And the senior partner of the firm, like soon after I got there, said, you know, we've got this situation in New York for our client. Do you want to go up to New York with me? And I said, sure. And I went up to New York with him, and it turned out that the employees of the Daily News, along with these doctors and lawyers and unions, had been filing these workers' compensation claims pretty much after a big strike that took place at the New York Daily News. And they had paid out millions of dollars. There was tens of millions of dollars remaining in claims. And I was supposed to stay for about a few days to investigate it. And I ended up living there for five years. And after a couple of weeks, I realized, I decided, this was all, in my mind, fraudulent. These were all fraudulent claims. And we ended up, on my recommendation as a 25-year-old kid, filing a 600-defendant racketeering case under civil RICO against everyone, against the doctors, the lawyers, the unions, everyone that was involved, we ended up suing in a 600-defendant racketeering case that was done on my recommendation as a first-year associate, 25 years old. And I'll never forget when I called the senior partner of my law firm and I said, I think we should do this. This is our best chance because the workers' compensation board, in my mind, was crooked and was just in favor of the employees. We weren't getting a fair shake. He said, we'll do what you say, Richard, but you better be right. And I uh, felt that I was right. And we got co-counsel because they're not going to trust something this massive to just a 25-year-old kid. So we got co-counsel in New York, but it was my show. And I lived in New York for five years prosecuting that case. And it was very successful. We did very well. And on my very last day in New York, and like I said, I've told this story many times, but on my very last day in New York, I was waiting for a taxi cab outside my building, and there was a dude standing next to me, and it was snowing, no cabs were coming, and I'm like, hey, you want to share the next cab that comes? And he said, sure. Gets in, and he asked me, hey, you know, what are you doing in New York? And I told him my story, just like I told you in, in 30 seconds, and he goes, oh, and I told him, I'm going back to Nashville, the case is over, we settled it, been here for five years. He goes, oh, my wife's in the music business, we go to Nashville from time to time, give me your card, and um, next time I'm in Nashville, we'll give you a call. So I had one card on me, I give it to him, out of the cab I go, and I figure I'm not going to see hear from him ever again. Now I'm back in Nashville, and I'm like, what the fuck am I doing here? I have been was in New York for five years, why did I come back? I've had all this great experience, no clients, because I've been in New York working on this one case for five years. All of a sudden, a few months later, the phone rings. Hey, remember me? We shared a taxi cab in New York on your last day. I said, sure. He goes, uh, well, my wife and I are in Nashville when I have dinner, okay? Turns out his wife is what's called a copyright administrator, for this record label and publisher out of Detroit, and they own the funk music of the 70s of George Clinton, Parliament Funkadelic, the Ohio Players, and they had identified 600 songs that sampled without license, allegedly, their music, and they were looking for a lawyer to handle this massive case against the entire music industry for copyright infringement. And I'm like, I don't know anything about music. And she's like, you know what? If you go to Detroit and meet the owner, maybe he'll like you and maybe he'll hire you. And I'm like, I don't know anything about music law. I don't know anything about copyright law. She's like, oh, you can learn it. You handle this big case in New York. Go to Detroit, meet him. So I go to Detroit. I meet him. And he likes me. He hires me. And about a year later, we, we launch what is now world-famous copyright litigation against everyone in the music business. I went up against every ma- major entertainment law firm in the country. We won every case we tried. And the law that we made in that litigation is now taught in law school. When you go to law school and you take an entertainment law class, 
It's basically all of my cases from that litigation that you'll learn about. Wow. And then the PS to the story is that when Eminem and his team were looking for a lawyer to handle that licensed digital download case I told you about a second ago, they grew up at the record label of this guy, who uh, Armin Baladian from Bridgeport Music and Westbound Records, who hired me for this litigation. And they told him that they needed a lawyer to handle that. And they're like, and he's like, oh, I got the perfect lawyer for you. He's uh, down in Nashville. He won all these cases for me. Go meet him and maybe you'll like him. They came down, they met me, they liked me. They hired me and I won that case and kind of the rest is history. But to answer your question directly, how did I get into entertainment law? I shared a taxi cab with some dude on my last day in New York. <laughs> and that taxi cab has changed my entire life. Listen, everything, I'm a true believer of everything happens for a reason. So if no story could show that that's true, I think that's one that holds true to that saying 100%. But you know what? Here's the thing about it. And this is, I think, the most important thing to take away from that story is that a lot of people say, oh, it was so lucky that you shared a taxi cab with that guy. And I say, bullshit. I say, listen, everything I did up until that moment brought me to that moment. Of course. Graduating fourth in my law school class, taking the job, willing to go to New York for five years, doing well when I went up there, kicking ass when I went up there, and then being there at that moment. I had to be somewhere at that moment. I was there. And then even when I made that introduction, I had to convince them to hire me. I had to win the cases. I had to do all that stuff. So Yeah, you had to learn. You didn't even know much about exactly. it. Exactly. So it's not luck. It's an opportunity. We all get opportunities every day. And success comes from people who recognize opportunity and then have the ability to take advantage of it and are willing to work for it. That's the bottom line of life. Some quote I saw, and I'm trying to rack my brain and see where I found it. But regardless, I'm sorry, I can't give credit to whoever I saw this from, but know that credit is due there. There's a there's something I saw that says, it, it was funny, the harder I was working, the luckier I was getting, going along with- I've heard that many times. The harder I work, the luckier I get. That's it. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that 100% that is, and anything that you do in life is the more work you're gonna put into something, as long as you're putting it in with an end goal, it's going to get you somewhere for sure. So look, at you did all these things. And I could see how some people would say, oh, you were lucky you gave him your card. You were lucky you guys shared a cab together. But no, it's like, there's something else I saw that this sort of reminds me of. It's like when you hire a handyman to fix something and it takes him 20 minutes to fix it, but it's $500. Well, you're paying that $500 for his 10 years of experience of trying to learn, of trying to understand. He had to buy the tools. He had to do all of these things. So I think it goes a little bit along those lines as well. But so you were focused um, solely on entertainment law. Is that what your primary focus is? Because obviously I did my due diligence on you. Um, I looked you up and I saw that there were some areas of law that you practice or do you just mainly focus just in entertainment? We do all types of litigation. It's just that at this point, after doing it for 20 years and having the whatever success we've had, that that's what I'm most known for. So I get phone calls in that area and that's what I do. And, and the truth, you know, we've handled a lot of different cases in a lot of different areas. And as, as I said, I spent five years doing a civil racketeering case. I have corporate clients, so I do their litigation for them. It's not just the entertainment practice, but it's the area where I am you know, most well-known. And so I'm always getting that opportunity and getting written up about it. And those are the kind of clients that tend to call me most often. 
Got it. And let's talk about one of the cases you brought up, which is the Blurred Lines case, which is maybe your most famous case you've been a part of. Um, will you explain to the listeners that don't know what it means to sample a song or to sample it you know, without the rights to do it? Can you explain to the listeners what that means? Sure. Well, Blurred Lines was not a sample, just... Uh, okay. But it's a good question. It's a very good question. So you'll hear the term sampling in music all the time. And what that generally means and what that has meant historically is, and that was, for example, I told you we won a big case against P. Diddy. It was for uh, and Bad Boy Records. It was Notorious B.I.G. song, Ready to Die. And that actually did sample an Ohio player's song, Singing in the Morning. And what a sample is, is a digital lifting of the actual sound recording. It's not a replay. It is actually, they go in and they digitally copy one song and put it into another song. So that's technically what a sample is. There's a term of art called an interpolation, which is a direct replay. So, and so if they hear something that they like and they just want to use it uh, in a song, they'll just, instead of sampling it, they'll interpolate it, which is just to replay it verbatim, Okay. In the Blurred Lines case, and, and there are so many different types of copyright infringement cases, and there's so many different types of ways you can establish copyright infringement. So, for example, I had a, a very big case. We ended up settling it. I can't discuss what the settlement was for, but I can tell you my clients wrote a song called Amazing, and Ed Sheeran, in his song Photograph, which is one of his top songs, that song contains a note-for-note -note copy of my client's song, Amazing, 38 identical notes, something like that. And so that's kind of the textbook case of alleged copyright infringement where you have that note-for-note -note copying. Blurred Lines was a little bit different. Blurred Lines was more challenging because while there were notes that matched, we didn't have that note-for-note -note copying. And what the defendant said, or what Pharrell and Robin Thicke said, was that it was an error that was being evoked. It was not the copy of, of Blurred Lines, I'm sorry, of Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up. It was more of the use of the same types of instruments, the same types of blueprint that one would find in 1970s funk song, and it wasn't a copying of the composition. And what we said was that it was a constellation of elements, that there were all of these elements from Got to Give It Up. It was the um, keyboard and the bass line playing together. It was vocal melodies. We had like 15 different parts of Got to Give It Up that we said were used or emulated in blurred lines. And it may not have been exact note for note, although it was, there was some note for note copying we, we showed, but it was not that type of 30 identical notes in a row. It was more that the structure and there was this constellation of elements and I could get into it more deeply, but I don't know that we have the time or, or we need to, but it was that type of copying that we alleged. And that's why it was so controversial because they said this opened up the door to all kinds of similar claims when it really isn't in their view, actual copying. We said it was of course. And that's why it became a very controversial case and was really all over the news and is still being written about today. Got it. And I have two questions that stem from what you just talked about. Number one, a lot of times, you know, and especially media today, you'll see this concept of people saying, I, I hear it all the time. There's this local radio morning show in Detroit that I am a regular listener of. I think the host does a fantastic job of guiding the show. But one of their popular segments that they do on the show is like playing two songs and saying, you know, this person is suing this person for 
sampling the song without permission. Why is it that these artists just aren't going and getting the permission? Or what does it take or what does it entail to get that permission to use that song? Okay, so the answer to the question is, Many times they do get permission. So many times there is permission to use it. So just because you hear two songs, one of which seems to copy the other, doesn't mean you think, oh my God, that's a copy. Well, they, they might have licensed it. So that's number one. Number two, when they don't, there's several reasons for it. First and foremost, my personal opinion is that this is a game of catch me if you can. In other words, it takes something to catch someone. Sometimes they try and change it just with a little bit of nuance to try to make sure it doesn't rise to the level of copyright infringement. So we kind of had an internal joke on Blurred Lines that the reason, that that's what Pharrell tried to do. That is, we believed he tried to copy Got to Give It Up, but change it just enough so it wouldn't be copyright infringement. And so a lot of times that's what people do. They try and, they have something in mind, they use something as a blueprint, but then they try and change it. So it might sound very similar, but the notes are, are changed ever so discreetly so that it doesn't amount to copyright infringement. So that's, that's one thing that'll happen. And other times, it's just, even if they do copy, like I said, it's a catch me if you can, because you gotta hire a lawyer. You gotta have the money to finance a lawsuit. And there are so many different defenses to copyright infringement that they think somewhere along the way, you're gonna mess up, we're gonna find a defense, you're not gonna have the wherewithal, the means, the money to pursue this. And in the meantime, we're gonna be making so much money off this record that who gives a shit, because we'll settle on the cheap even if we have to pay you something. When artists are doing it the correct way and are you know, buying the ability to sample the song, is that something that is costly, which may be a reason why artists don't want to do that? Or is it just like you just have to be able to license it? I don't know the correct legal terms to use. The way it worked historically, so and there are a few companies that do this. There's, it's called clearing the use. And usually, traditionally, you clear a use by giving up some percentage of the composition based on the value of the use. So you might negotiate 10% or 20% or 30%, or you could have an income buyout where you say, I'm going to buy you out for a certain amount. But generally speaking, the smart, savvy publisher whose work is being copied will want a piece of the action, and it will depend on the value of the use and your bargaining power. And, you know, and so... I would say that that's generally the way it's done is that there's a negotiation up front when it's done the right way and there's a percentage agreed to. So they'll get like 20% of the publishing, 25%, something like that. And until you know whether it's a hit or not, then you don't know how costly it's going to be. But that's basically the way it's done. Got it. Got it. That makes sense for sure. And, you know, I always wondered that I'm actually a big fan of like looking at artists who sample songs and do them very well. I love seeing that. In fact, I was watching a video before we started this just in the morning about uh, a Drake song that was sampled from a 1960 song. I think it's very unique, and I think it's something a lot of people don't realize. But Richard, why is it, and I know this isn't sort of your specialty area, but it's entertainment law related. Why is it that you think in the music industry, there's a trend of people that are trying to go more independent, that aren't trying to be tied to the record label, that are trying to do things on their own to have all of the income come solely to them and not split it or not have a portion go or a majority go to the record label? Why are we seeing this trend in the music industry? Well, that's a very simple question. You know, record labels used to be valuable because of their distribution network, because of their manufacturing plants when you sold records with CDs and on vinyl and cassettes and so forth. 
and because you had A and R, and because you had, you know, promotion, and you had all these different things. That's what the record label brings to the table. But in today's day and age, with YouTube and with Instagram, and the ability of people to promote themselves, and you don't need a distribution network anymore, and you don't need a manufacturing plan anymore. And so, what does the record label actually bring to the table, really? And so especially when people can get known and have hits on their own, and then the record labels will all be bidding for them to try to get them signed. So why would you want to share money with a record label when if you're talented, you can put it on YouTube or you can put it on Instagram and you can promote the hell out of it yourself with your followers and you get all the money yourself. And by the way, there are, you were able to upload stuff onto Spotify and you're able to upload stuff onto iTunes and, and Apple Music now, not really so much iTunes anymore. And so, you know, you don't really need that anymore. And so why give, give up 80 to 90% of your money just to have a, a deal signed with a record label? Yeah, no, for sure. And staying on track with this topic of record labels and artists, is that the reason that we are seeing a huge trend of artists trying to break away from their record labels and trying to become independent artists, even if, you know, back then they were signed to a record label 15, 10 years ago, and today they're trying to say, hey, I want the hell out of this contract. I want to be my own person. Is that why we're seeing this trend for the same reason as that? Yeah, I mean, I would say yes. I mean, it's all about money. And it's all about the fact that today, as I said, with Instagram and YouTube, you don't need what you once needed. And you're able to promote things by your, on your own so easily. You don't need a big promotion team and you don't need what you once, you know, needed. And, you know, it's a new age. And the good news for the record labels is because they own all this content, it's all now profit for them. They've never been more profitable, by the way. Their profit margins are through the roof. Why? Because they don't need, there's zero costs anymore. They basically take their digital file and they supply it to Spotify. Yeah, no, it's definitely something that's very interesting. I had a prominent Detroit rapper on the show. Uh, he was on one of the first 10 or 15 episodes, and he is an independent artist. And I sort of asked him the question, and he said exactly the same reason that you're saying is he's like, why would I need this? I have a following on Instagram. When I drop a video, when I drop a new song, I'm promoting the hell out of it on Instagram. And so are all my fans. They're reposting it. They're doing all this thing. So... I guess in essence, the upper hand that the record label had is, was taken out by the internet, was taken out by social media, and it made the playing ground way more fair for the artist to become, you know, the true big artist, a popular sensation around the world just because of the internet. And it was no, they, they no longer need the resources of the record label. True, but like I said, it, the amazing thing of it is everyone thought that downloads and interactive streaming and so forth, and, and when you know, Napster emerged and you had file sharing, that, that all of that would end up being the downfall of the record label and the record industry. But to the contrary, as I said, now they're more profitable than ever. Yeah, no, I, I definitely see how that is possible. That's definitely not the impact that a lot of people expect it to be. Like you just said, everyone expected them to crumble and fall down. And it, you know, didn't have that impact on them. But switching gears a little bit um, and talking about more law in general, obviously, this is a criminal defense. None of this is your specialty. But a general question I have for you is because my audience are younger. Yeah, I do follow all that. So I'm able to you, you hit me with whatever questions you want. All right. I love that. He does it all here. Exactly so, right. If, you know, like I said, a lot of my audience, they're younger, whether they're in their late teens, their early 20s. What is 
a few recommendations, and I don't want to say recommendations, what is some advice you have for the younger generations in terms of law? Like, say you're signing a contract, should you have a lawyer look over that contract? Any general legal tips and advice you have for the audience will be very beneficial because, you know, I'm fortunate enough where my stepmom's an attorney, uh, our office is employed with attorneys, so I know that you always want to have an extra set of eyes that knows what they're doing, that know what they're doing to look over. But what general advice does the great, the legend, the best of the best Richard Bush have for um, the listeners of the show? Well, I mean, you kind of answered the question yourself, didn't you? I mean, everyone should always, no one should ever sign anything without having it looked over by someone they they trust and they and they know knows what they're doing. I mean, that's that you don't need me to tell you that. That is a very common sense thing to do. As far as just general advice, I would just say that, and this is not really directly responsive to your question because your question is more about, you know, whether you should have a lawyer look things over or not. But as far as my general advice to someone like yourself is, you know, basically believe in yourself. Don't think anyone's better than you. That's something that I always had inside of me. I don't know where it came from, but I never thought anyone was smarter than me or better than me, even if they grew up with more than I did. Um, I just had this belief in myself and um, that belief in yourself can carry you a long way as long as you're willing to work for it and you're willing to let nothing stand in your way. Don't get distracted by bullshit. Don't get distracted by anything. You know, I like to tell people that, you know, when you're 18, 19, 17, 20 years old, you look at other people who, the guy who's got the hot girl, who's in the in crowd or whatever when you're in high school and what you don't realize then is that all of that and and you look at the athletes or whatever and you kind of admire or look up to them but what you don't realize is that's all bullshit and by the time they're in their mid-20s or whatever all that's gone away and really the only thing that matters to success in life is what's inside your head and using what's inside your brain and striving to not let anyone outwork you or believe anyone's better than you and to go for your dreams and your goals without letting anything get in your way and don't let bullshit get in your way. Don't get distracted by the noise, as I call it, the noise out there. And the the last thing is, and I say this to people all the time too, the world will try and bring you down to their level. No one really wants to see you succeed except your parents. Literally, no one really wants to see you succeed. No one really wants to see you kick ass in a major way. Why? Because it makes them feel bad about themselves. Because then they're thinking, man, I can't believe he's doing that and I'm sitting home living at home with my mom and dad, you know, or I'm doing shit. And so don't let the world or your friends, your so-called friends, bring you down to their level. So that's the best advice I can give to someone your age and to someone that anyone that's listening to this podcast. No, that is great advice. And everything you just mentioned all goes into the same basket with which is a slogan of the show, something I've always believed in, and it's leading by example. Every person that is a regular listener of the show knows that every time I end the show, I tell everyone to always lead by example. And everything you just described encompasses and entails what leading by example means. It means not getting distracted by the outside noise of people that are your age that are doing things that aren't going to benefit them in life and aren't going to move them further in life. 
something I always talk about. I guess I shouldn't say I always talk about it, but I have talked about it before is how in college, everyone that I know will tell you in college, like I never went out. I never went out partying. You know, there were a few times, of course, I went out, but it wasn't a regular thing like a normal college kid who's at Michigan State University does. Like it's known as a party school. And I was not a partier, nor did that was that ever inside of me. And when you talk about not letting the noise distract you, there were times where people were going out and I'm like, holy shit, like, should I be going out or should I continue focusing and working? It's not like I was just sitting at home doing nothing. Like I was trying to create businesses. I was putting in the work for school, knowing I want to go to law school. And I think a lot of the times that's what happens in a college setting is you are brought down because this is the normal. This is the normal to go and drink four or five times a week. That's what's normal. And I think that's a huge flaw. Of course, go out and enjoy yourself and, you know, just live life a little bit, but don't do it so often. And I just want to touch on that because I think what Richard's saying really has to go with some college experiences as a whole. It's important to understand that what these people are doing, going out drinking four or five, six times a night, um, doing drugs, doing all of these things, in my opinion, is not going to boost you further in life. Of course, there's stories where it didn't make an impact. It didn't have an impact. But I think having laser focus at a young age, listen to Richard. I mean, he was in his senior year of college. He was playing baseball and he decided like, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to work hard and I'm going to pursue something and that look where it ended up turning him out. He had to, but he worked hard to get to where he was. And I think that's the difference maker there is there's some people that just think, oh, like you said, we'll go back to it. Some people will be like, oh, you got lucky sitting there. Like, no, he didn't get lucky because he had to determine he was going to law school, had to study for the LSAT, went to law school, worked hard in law school to graduate number four in his class, then had to study for the bar, then had to land a job at a great law firm, and then had to win this huge case to show his boss that he was on the right track and that he knew what he was doing to show his value, to show his worth to the firm. And then that's when it all finally started tying things together. And that was it years after you said that that happened? It was five years. I was in New York with that case before we settled it. And so, yeah. It takes years. The process is not easy by any means. So I appreciate you bringing that up, Richard. I appreciate you giving the listeners that advice from a successful businessman, lawyer, the best of the best. I appreciate that. Um, My pleasure. What is your favorite part about being an attorney? That's a really good question because I'd answer that question differently now than I would 20 years ago when I first started. Things change and things evolve and you change as a person. I can answer the question this way in general, which is as a former athlete, being a litigator is the closest you can come to having a game day. In other words, you know, when you have that deposition or you have that trial, right, that's game day. And there are a few professions where you get to have a game day. And so as someone who grew up playing sports, um, whether it be basketball or baseball or football, I always had game days that I would get up for and I would look forward to. And so the thing that I've enjoyed throughout my career, I guess, uh, to answer the question most clearly, is the fact that you get to have that adrenaline-like moment of a game day that you get up for and then you get to get to perform in and have the spotlight on you so i've enjoyed that 
I would never have expected that to be your answer. But that is very interesting that it sort of gives you that same rush, that same feeling like this is my time to shine. I'm going to be MVP. You know, I'm going to I'm going to hit that home run or score that touchdown, whatever the analogy you want to use. That is a very cool analogy for sure. And I totally see how it works. Right. Because you get up and you're like, you know, you're going to put on a suit. You know, you're going to enter into that courtroom prior to covid and you're going to kick ass. And I love that mentality because it's a leadership mentality. And I love that about you. Um, yeah, for sure. I, okay, so I've done my due diligence on you, and I know that you are a legal correspondent or have been for numerous large media outlets. You've gone on Fox News, you've gone on other media outlets, and you've talked about your opinion on certain legal issues that are happening. And a question I want to ask you and is, in a society like today's society where everything is so divided and the world is so divided, does it ever instill fear inside of you to go on TV and to talk about your feelings about a case that some people may disagree with because of the division that's happening in the country? The best way I can answer that is, and I say this all the time, as I mentioned, I grew up in Carroll City and it's an all-black neighborhood. I was the only white boy. I pretty much had a Every time I walked out of my house, I knew there was a good chance I was going to get my ass kicked. And my dad died when I was very young, and it was just my mom and I. She didn't drive. We took the bus. We walked wherever we went. It's a true story. And so I always tell people that when you're eight or nine years old and you have to figure out which street to walk down that will give you the best chance not to get your ass kicked, life is a piece of cake after that. And so the reason why I answer the question that way is because nothing scares me like that. I, am, I don't give a fuck about what anyone thinks about my opinion, especially now that I've achieved this kind of level of success and I don't, I don't care about anyone else's opinion. I don't care what other people think. I'm going to be true to myself and I'm going to express my opinion and people that don't like it, I don't care. And so, no, I'm not scared to offer my opinion. I'm not scared to offer a controversial opinion. You know, on my podcast, I try to, I don't, I don't know what your politics are, but I, on my podcast... I tried to stay away from taking sides uh, because I didn't want to have an audience feel like if they were one side or the other, that the podcast was not for them. But, you know, after the election with all the bullshit we saw with Rudy Giuliani and with Donald Trump and challenging the election baselessly and these ridiculous claims of fraud, and then with the storming of the Capitol building, and I'm Jewish, and there was some asshole there with a uh, Camp Auschwitz shirt on. You know, I couldn't take it anymore. And so in my last few episodes, I've let my opinion um, be known pretty well. And so, no, I'm not concerned about offering my opinion. I'm not concerned about offending anybody uh, because my opinion is true to myself. By the same token, I'm not going to be shy about offering my own opinion. That's something that's interesting because I will never talk about politics on here. I won't even respond to your comment. I'll be upfront about that. I just think it's a little different for you because you've created your success, you have your empire, you've built what you need to build. Um, for me, what I study in school is social relations and policy. And the number one issue that I see is people not being able to agree to disagree oh, my on best certain friend, issues. Uh, listen, not to interrupt you, but one of my best friends is, uh, and I've had him on my podcast, is this great record producer, Polo Dudon. He's produced for some of the greatest artists in the world. He's an African-American dude. He was a big supporter of Donald Trump. I had him on my show. We talked things through. He and I were at dinner the other night in Miami together. We're best friends. I do not, listen, and I have other friends who also support Donald Trump that, that I disagree with, but it doesn't affect our relationship and I respect everyone's opinion. And, and I agree that the problem with society today in general is this 
us against them mentality and this inability to actually respect someone else's opinion as flawed as it might be or as you might think it might be and to take it so personally because it's affecting relationships, it's affecting families, it's affecting friendships, and it's ridiculous. But you're right, uh, the, the fact that we can't respect other people's opinions is a, is a real problem in today's society, I agree. Yeah, no, uh, the famous story I always tell is I have been in a class setting. My class settings are not your typical college, two, 300 person lectures. I have 20 kids maximum, 25 kids maximum, and what I absolutely can't stand is when there are people that don't want to hear the other side and don't want to just, I don't care. I, I never once said you had to agree with me. You had to disagree with me or you even had to respond to my comments, but at least think about it for a second. Think about why I am wrong in your opinion or why it could maybe change your view of things. And in my society, that is something that I want to achieve or that I strive to want to change because it is so I, I don't even know the word to use it. It's, it's hurtful to see that people my age where we should be mature enough to have the conversation like you and I are having right now and to be able to say, okay, you know, that's why you think what you think. This is why I think what I think. And, you know, we can still be friends. We can still maintain our relationship. We can talk every day, go out to dinner, laugh, smile, do whatever, but know that we disagree on things because well, that's a product of human our society, nature. Man. Listen, I don't care what story you read on the internet. It could be the most heartwarming, wonderful story in the world. It could be like Bambi shit. But then you read the comments and you have all these trolls just with horrific, horrible comments. You watch television, you watch any news show and you have these talking heads on and they're attacking each other. So we as society, especially you know younger people, I think, and, and I'm not gonna say that's not something that older people do too, because they do, they get indoctrinated with this being the way we're supposed to react to people who have different opinions because we're being polluted on a daily basis with this hatred and this spewing of vulgar comments and this yelling at each other. I mean, we see it on television all day long. We see it on the internet. We read the comments and that's what we're becoming as a human, as a, as a species, which is really unfortunate. Yeah, it's very unfortunate, especially for you know, myself, I'm obviously younger, but for younger people as well, it's unfortunate that they have to grow up in this society where things are so divided by politics. Obviously, I'm young. I haven't experienced a lot of my life thus far, but I mean, the the amount of division there is just within my friend group in terms of politics, in, in terms of the like going back to that famous story, I, I didn't get to tell it. It is that I was sitting in a class one day and I disagreed with one of my classmates about an issue relating to politics. And he physically got up from his chair, middle of class, and left the classroom and was unwilling to have the conversation. And I look at my professor and I'm just like, that's acceptable. That's how this country is going to move forward. And he kind of just shrugs his shoulders and doesn't say anything to it. So... It's definitely a very sad situation that I hope people can understand and we can start to turn things around, but it's going to take all of us, not just one person. But getting back on track to entertainment law, we got a little off track there, but it was a beneficial conversation and I wanted it to happen. What do you think is the best way for someone to, obviously you have to go to law school, pass the bar, et cetera, but what would be the best way for someone to get their feet wet if they do want to practice entertainment law? What would you, what's the route you would recommend them to take? Because for you, it's a little bit different. You sort of fell into this just by chance and worked hard to, 
you know, keep in this industry. But what would you say to someone that's like, I want to do entertainment law? Well, there's two parts to entertainment law. There's the transactional side where you negotiate agreements, where you have that personal relationship with an artist who's your client and you negotiate all their deals, and but you don't litigate cases. And then there's the litigation side. So first you have to decide which side you want to be on. Do you want to be on, and then you also have to decide, do you want to be on the artist side or do you want to be on the studio side? Do you want to be on the record label side? Do you want to be on the movie studio side? Do you want to be on that side of the equation? And then you have to decide, do you want to be in the entertainment practice? So if you, I mean, in the litigation practice, I should say. So once you make that decision, then what you would do is you would research the different law firms. If you want to be an artist transactional lawyer, there's plenty of great artist transactional law firms out there. You might want to decide, do you want to be on the movie and film side? Do you want to be on the music side? What do you want to be? Because there are different practice groups for both. And then you want to apply to those types of firms. If you want to be on the studio side or the label side, then you'd want to apply to work or intern at different TV studios, record labels, production companies, things like that. And if you want to be on the litigation side, same thing. You can figure out plenty of law firms that do one side or the other and that do litigation as opposed to transactional. And you could apply for clerkships. You could apply when you're in law school. You should apply. You can apply you know, once you go to graduate law school to those firms, um, those types of things. So it's, it's not difficult. You just have to decide where you want to go and what you think your interest, where your interest lies. Yeah, thank you for that. And everyone, listen, if you do, if this conversation does interest you in any way, Listen, you have the best of the best right here giving you the advice on which route to take that is going to benefit you most. So make sure you're listening. And I would honestly be taking notes because if that's something you want to do, go ahead with what Richard's saying. Follow his path, follow his footsteps and where he's leading you. Because as you've heard me say in the show, he encompasses everything that a leader has. So I appreciate that. And Richard, I like to ask this question because my family's in the tax business. Actually, I probably will end up practicing tax law. But as- I'm sorry. <laughs> Listen to that. Everyone says that, but it's a decision I made. It's something I grew up with. It's something that people- Get ready for a boring life. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, you know I'll, I'll push back a little bit on that because- I'm just joking. Obviously, I'm just playing with you. No, honestly, people do say like my girlfriend, right? My my literal girlfriend, she's like, because we own an accounting firm. She's like, it is so boring to be an accountant. Like, how do people do that? And I just sit there and laugh. I'm like, I'm like, that's what some people like to do. They like to crunch numbers. They like to sit there, but it's definitely not for anyone. It's not for me. I'll tell you that much right now. But I enjoy the side that we specialize in, which is tax resolution. And it's making people, solving people's problems and making people's problems go away to the best that we can. And it's a huge weight lifted off people's shoulders. It's often an emotional situation for our clients. They're crying. They can't sleep at night, et cetera, et cetera. But as a lawyer, were you taught anything about taxes, how to file your taxes, how to structure your business taxes, tax planning? Because honestly, we have a lot of clients that are lawyers that made mistakes. And it's always, you know, people are always like, no way that a, uh, that an attorney hired you guys because they have tax problems. You would think they would know. And we we're just like, they didn't know. So were you taught any of these things along the way? Or were you looking for guidance from a tax specialist to help you ensure that you were doing things the right way? the latter. I know nothing about taxes and I have a great CPA and we have 
tax lawyers in my law firm that handle those types of things for us. So, and we have accountants and, and all that. So no, I, I know zero about that, nor do I have any interest in knowing about that. I just know one thing. I pay too much in taxes. That's what I know about taxes. <laughs> well, yeah, everyone always says I pay too much. How can I not pay as much? Well, listen, if you don't want to pay as much, don't work as hard. Don't make as much That's money. That's what everyone it's... says. I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, how can someone contact you if they want to hire you? If I, I, I don't know if you're well, willing know, to give out your well, they give they, you a, they know how to get they know how to get in touch with me. I mean, if you Google Richard Bush on the internet, you're going to find me and um, and you know my law firm is King and Blue, and they can locate me very easily. I'd love it if they are interested in this type of conversation. We've had great guests on my podcast, Blurred Laws in Life. It's doing really well, and I'm enjoying doing it. And so. Um, they should tune into my podcast and see what they think. I think they'd enjoy it if they do it. Yeah, it's a great show. It's definitely interesting discussions all of the time on topics that you don't really have an in to. So it sort of gives you that in and you can feel a part of what's going on or what was going on, I should say. Uh, Richard, a question I want to ask you before the final question that just popped into my head. Do you think that being an attorney makes you a more efficient or a better problem solver at anything you do in life? I think it helps in everything you do in life. And it's not, it's like there's this old movie from the 1970s. It was called Paper Chase. And it was like a famous movie about going to law school and these two guys who went to Harvard Law School. And the professor on the first day of law school said, I'm about to give you the greatest gift anyone can ever give anyone. I'm going to train you. I'm going to teach you how to think like a lawyer. And that is really true because everything that I do in life, whether it's my investments, whether it's just how I perceive different situations, how I analyze things in my personal life, it all comes back to the training of how you evaluate. Because that's what you do in law school is you take factual hypothetical situations and you figure out what the legal issues are, what the problems are, and how to, how to resolve them and how they will be resolved. And that type of mentality, you can't help but take to your everyday life. And it's incredible training to be able to think in that way, to logically break something down and analyze it and think about it. And as you do that more often, you obtain incredible gut instincts. You have great intuition about the way things will play out. One of my greatest gifts and why I've been a successful trial lawyer is I'm able to see in advance what facts will resonate with people, how to use facts to my advantage, and how to convince someone that I'm right in an argument. And of course, you deal with that every day with, with every relationship that you have. So it is great training for the mind and it helps out in every facet of your life. It really does. Yeah, no, 100%. I am a true believer of that as well. I don't even know if, I, obviously I'm going, I want to specialize in tax law, but who knows if I will even end up practicing. I just think it's a great thing to have under my belt for whatever endeavors I do in life for the exact reason you said. And I wanted the listeners to hear all of that from someone who is an attorney, who has, you know, created this empire for themselves and built themselves up to be a world-renowned entertainment lawyer. There are benefits outside of just practicing law that being a lawyer brings to you in your everyday life. Now, Richard, this is the last question of the interview. It's one I ask all my guests at the end of the interview, and here we go. Richard, what do you wish you knew 
when you were in your early 20s? The best way for me to answer that question, the very best way for me to answer that question is, I wish I knew then what I know now about everything. In other words, I wish I could take this life that I've lived and the experiences that I've gained and whatever wisdom I have and be able to transplant that to myself at your age. Okay. Because nothing is a substitute for experience and actually living through the ups and the downs. I've had, it might sound like my life has been a, a rocket ship trajectory higher. There have been massive challenges. I've had many lows to go with the many highs and I've dealt with them and have persevered. I think the universe rewards people who keep going and who persevere even at their darkest moments. And I would say that if I wish that I knew then that when I have these dark moments, when you have these low times in your life, that you will get through it if you just keep on fighting and never give up. And I wish I knew then how best to handle those challenges when they arose. So that's the best answer I can give you. I absolutely love that because something I usually always talk about, we didn't have enough time to get to it. Maybe we'll have you on in a future episode and we'll talk about it, but it's failures that you've endured in life and how you've got past them because I'm a true believer, just like you are, that in order to succeed, you fail. That's just how it is. You fail, you grow, you learn from the failure, you become a better person physically, mentally, a better problem solver. You don't make the same mistakes again. And I think failure is a huge part of success. And people don't talk about it enough. Like when you see interviews with successful people, they're not necessarily talking about their failure. Instead, they're talking about what they've created and why it's so big. But know that a lot of that doesn't come without getting knocked down a few times, but you have to get back up. Just like Richard said, you have to keep fighting. It's essential if you want to be successful, in my opinion, 100%. Let me just say, leave you with one last thought on that same topic. I once watched a television show. They were interviewing billionaires, literally billionaires, and every single one of them said they lost it all several times before they finally struck it rich. And so, you know, it's like they say about Thomas Edison. He failed, I don't know, 150 times in trying to figure out how to make the light bulb until he finally succeeded. So it is, without a doubt, the thing I'm most proud about are not my successes. When I look back on my life now and look back on the challenges I've had, I don't want to talk about specifically, but a lot of dark moments, a lot of low, uh, lows to go with all these great highs. But what I'm most proud of is not actually the victories. It's the fact that I kept on when I thought all was lost and when I thought I'll never get past this and, and this is the worst. And I just kept on fighting and never gave up. And, and that's the real test of a man. And that's a real test of success at the end of the day. Yeah, 100%. I couldn't agree with you more. Well, Richard, for real, thank you for coming on the show and talking with me. This interview has me even more hyped up to go to law school. I'm excited to pursue my career. And even if I choose not to practice, you've really, you, you pushed me into this mode that I've been in, but even in a higher gear. So I thank you for that. Thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate the conversation and let's stay in touch. I know, I know you're in Miami, so maybe we'll have to have dinner or lunch or do something. That sounds great. All right. Well, thank you for having me on your show. I really enjoyed it. Yep. All right. Bye-bye. As you just heard, Richard is one of the best of the best lawyers in the areas in which he practices. 
He knows what the hell he's talking about. He's been through the ringer. He's come out a champion. He is a leader in his industry, in his field. He has had world-renowned cases that he's won and that he's had the privilege of representing a party within one of these cases. He has so much experience, so much expertise, as you just heard from the episode. We kind of jumped all over the board there, but I thought it was a very very engaging conversation that talked about a lot of problems that we're going through today and talked about a numerous amounts of tips and advice he gives to you as the younger generation is the majority of the listeners of the show he really is a leader and you all know that i always talk about leading by example and being a leader and he really everything we talked about i said it on the show during the interview i'll say it right now on the outro he is a leader because of what he does who he is he doesn't care about other people's opinions he doesn't care about certain things that others do he doesn't get distracted by the noise and that is what i want you all to do in your everyday life be the best that you can be be the best of the best always lead by example please 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 everyone if you are a regular listener to this podcast make sure you're subscribed to the show make sure you're spreading the word about the show and if you are using ios the apple podcast app please leave a five-star review for the show because it does help the show grow it does do something for the growth of the show for the development of the show lastly please check out the social media pages for the podcast you should know these by now if you're a regular listener but if you're a new one i'll give them to you the at sign or the username you can find the podcast on social media is at tbotbpod you can visit the website tbotbpod.com on there there's numerous different things it's just another way to interact with the show as i always say but seriously everyone i want you to have a great rest of the week have a great weekend and always always remember as a listener to this show you must be a leader nothing less than that you're a listener to the show i hold you to a higher standard that is how it is and everyone ladies and gentlemen that is it for this episode of the best of the best maverick's guide to success and stay tuned for next week's episode because it is going to be pretty cool